This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Generation Anthropocene is supported by Stanford School of Earth Energy and Environmental Sciences. Find out more at earth.stanford.edu. We're also supported by Worldview Stanford, whose mission is to create interdisciplinary learning experiences for professionals. To learn more about Worldview, visit worldview.stanford.edu. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, where we tell stories of people, the planet, and people on the planet. I'm Miles Traer. On today's show, we're bringing you a conversation with science fiction author Kim Stanley Robinson. Robinson is regarded by many as one of the greatest living sci-fi authors today, and in many of his works, he explores environmental themes such as climate change and ecological engineering. He's perhaps best known for his Mars trilogy, where he imagines the near-future colonization and terraforming of the Martian surface. Robinson lives in Davis, California, and our producer Mike Osborne drove out to meet him in a small courtyard outside his house. This place that we're in talking in right now, I think of this as a somewhat enclosed Sierra meadow. This so, is your, uh, we should describe it. Yeah, it's a, a front courtyard. It's underneath a Japanese maple tree, and I, I have a tarp for uh, shade and for rain. Um, and it's my workspace with a, a whole bunch of flowers and bird feeders. Uh, I see the, the seasons change. I see the clouds go by. I, I'm in the weather. It's, it's extraordinarily uh, cold. That's easy to deal with. You dress up. And the radical heat that we should be in, like even today, that's really hard to deal with. I, I have a fan. I even have a mister. But I mostly slow roast out, out here and find it hard. So you do it for, for seasons a year? Yes. Yeah. And when I'm writing a novel, I'm right here in this chair next to me, and I have gotten very religious about it, very obsessive. I only write my novel right here, no matter what the weather has, is doing. And about three of the last five novels have ended in a gigantic storm where rain is pouring down on the sides of this tarp, and I'm typing away going, yep, it must be that I'm near the end because I'm in a storm again. I actually wanted to kind of go back to your... Uh graduate work. Sure. Uh, you know, the, the, your PhD was all about Philip K. Dick, is that correct? That's right. Um, I went to UC San Diego for both my BA and my PhD, and really UC San Diego is my 
intellectual home in, in the academic world. When I was at UCSD and interested in science fiction, that was where I learned that science fiction existed and I kind of went crazy for it. I had a teacher there, Frederick Jameson, and he said to me, well, if you're interested in science fiction, you really need to study Philip K. Dick because he's the greatest living American writer. And that surprised me. Uh, I hadn't read much of Dick's work at that point, but I dove into it, and I sort of saw what Jameson meant. About what year is this? Because, I mean, there's been so right. many movies based on Philip K. Dick's work that his name has a certain place in culture now that maybe it didn't. Right. Oh, this was about 1973, 74. And so then Dick was having hard times. He was living in Orange County. He hadn't published for a while. It's like the last person in the world, you would say, is the greatest American living writer, almost, at that time. Dick would agree. I mean, he felt very overlooked. But Jameson was um, aware of the the political element in Dick's work, the kind of allegory that's always there, and the sort of surrealistic brilliance of these um, quickly produced novels. Sometimes Dick would write a novel in two weeks. Uh, in 1965, he wrote five novels, and he got like a $1,500 for each of them, and that was that. So it was commercial, what you might call cheap commercial art production, but Jameson saw the genius in it, and so I unpacked that for my graduate work. What did you discover about that? I mean, did you develop uh, during your graduate work uh, a an eye for what makes great science fiction? Well, I think so, but it wasn't just the work on Philip K. Dick. It was a very particular case, very great but very individualized, a kind of a surrealist, very much of a California writer. All of his novels are, are crazy images of California in the 70s and the 60s. But I also got the chance to work with uh, Ursula Le Guin, who came to UCSD, and she taught me the kind of anthropological and feminist elements in the potential that science fiction had for doing that kind of thing. And I went to the Clarion Workshop myself in between my undergraduate and my graduate work. Um, from those years, I got plugged in to what science fiction was doing at its cutting edge. So I read backwards, and, and it took decades to kind of unpack the, the entire uh, genre, the history of the genre. That was the work of many years, because from the 1890s on, it's been continuously inter interesting. Mm. I mean, I, it, this is this is going to sound like a little bit of a um, an overly simplified question, but kind of where I'm getting at here is what makes good science fiction. I mean, you know, what 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 does a uh, you know, I, I know what I like as a as a critic and as a consumer and as a viewer as a reader, but uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on you know what makes good science fiction. Well, it's set in the future, okay? This is the basic thing, is that it, it plays off of that, that aspect of human thought that we're always trying to plan, we're always trying to foresee, we're always hoping for better and fearing the worst. So you get this automatic, in your own mind, many hours of thought are spent in a kind of utopian or dystopian thought process where you're seeing futures that you want or that you want to avoid. So kind of either letting fears or hopes run away with themselves? Yes, and, and running them out as scenarios. Yeah. Like, if I did this, then that would happen, and therefore you're planning. So science fiction is a kind of a, a planning wing of, of fiction at large, and what you want is a, a plausibility, like this really could happen, and then um, a certain vividness, like what would it feel like to be in this kind of a future? So a good science fiction is, is plausible and then also... Um, not just in its predictions for technology or for history, 
but in the way that it feels for the characters in the books. So there's a lot piled onto science fiction. So good science fiction has to be good at the sciences, has to be knowledgeable about the sciences, and then it has to be good at the people level of characters, because fiction ultimately is always about characters. And if the characters are not vivid, then the book just doesn't have the same impact. That actually seems to answer the follow-up question, which is what makes for bad science fiction, and an ignorance of the science is probably part of it. Yes, although some people who are quite ignorant of sciences have still written very good science fiction because the ultimate thing is the feel of the future. Mm. So someone who didn't like modern progress, someone like, say, Ray Bradbury, can write quite wonderful science fiction without being at all good on science. On the other hand, Arthur Clarke was a working scientist, and he was very good on the sciences, very canny. Same with Asimov. Mm. But what Bradbury captured was the emotional aspect, the feel of what the future would feel like for an ordinary person. Didn't know anything about science either. Yeah. Whereas Asimov and Clarke were working more at, like, what, what would the scientists be feeling as they did their future work and made these marvelous discoveries or explorations. So there's different ways to be good at science fiction because the future is so big. It's such a big category. Yeah. Well, I want to bring in um, I want to bring in environmentalism into this in some sense. And another kind of overly simplified question at the risk of sounding stupid. Would you call yourself an environmentalist? Oh, yes. Sure. Um, no, without hesitation. No, of course not. Uh, no hesitation at all. Uh, to me, you're either an environmentalist or you're or you're not paying attention or you're in denial somehow. Because also, there's something wrong with this term, environmentalist, as if you're talking about something else, some other. Let's uh, say that 50% of the DNA inside your body is not human DNA, and that you are therefore a kind of a forest or a swamp. So um, when you say you're an environmentalist, maybe you're saying you're a humanist. Mm. And so, or uh, um, you, you want to blur these categories because the environmentalist is a kind of a 70s word, and now we're in 2016. What you want to be is cutting edge again and say in 2016, this is a false distinction. We're like jellyfish in the ocean. The ocean's washing in and out of us. We're being pushed around by it. Mm. We're not that much in control of it. And we have to pay attention to ecology as a kind of medicine, as a kind of a self-help project. We're just expressions of the earth. This is why I've been working on science fiction that is about humanity imagining itself that it could be separate from the earth. I'm beginning to doubt that from the scientific evidence. I'm beginning to doubt humans can stay healthy away from the earth for anything more than a few years at a time. And at that point, you're breaking down. Like climbers in the Himalayas, they talk about the death zone. You get above about uh, 20 to 25,000 feet, and they call it the death zone because your body's breaking down up there no matter what else you're doing, and you're just trying to climb your mountain and get out of there before you die. Well, I'm thinking the death zone extends upward, you know, from the top of Everest to infinity and beyond. <laughs> it's just a case of the death zone is anything when we're not on Earth in the ecological zone where we co-evolved and uh, prospered with this complex of elements. It has to do with the gravitational field, the magnetic field, the particular combination of the elements that we're exposed to and that we take in and then we get rid of, and so on and so forth. The hydrosphere, the biosphere, and all yeah, that. Yeah, that we're implicated in it so deeply that we can't chop off little pieces of it and take them around with us and still prosper. Well, I, I want to stick on this for another second and, and try it from a slightly different angle in terms of thinking about this generation's attitude and approach to conservation, to holding up biodiversity as something sacred, that concepts of wilderness even. And I think that this is where it gets into science fiction in a big way, is that 
a generation ago, the wilderness experience was held up as with nature as the other, as something external and something uh, separate from human. Yeah. Uh, and that doesn't exist anymore. I mean, that's one of the realities of the Anthropocene. So how does it still remain sacred if that's the reality? And I think that that's one of the great questions for, you know, millennial environmentalists today. Well, that's a good one. Yes, indeed. Um, John Muir was very good on this in that he wanted the, the word Yosemite to apply to every uh, steep-sided glacial valley in the Sierra Nevada or anywhere on Earth. Those are Yosemites. And so he gets into a riff about how the Central Valley, where we are right now, is a gigantic Yosemite. And this little uh, place called 20 Hills Hollow, which is only about a mile long and the, and the cliffs are about 50 feet high, that that's also Yosemite. So he's thinking fractally. And what I think he wanted to suggest to people was that if there are some places regarded as sacred, we really ought to generalize from that and remember that all places are sacred. It's not an either or. It's not a pure and pr uh, sacred and profane, pure and um, sullied. Uh, set of landscapes, they all are equal and should be equal in our minds. And so the idea of wilderness is somewhat problematized now. The concept of wilderness where humans never go or they only go as visitors and, and don't stay uh, can be uh, usefully extended out to say, okay, some places might be like that, but there might be many more places where there are very few humans, where the human touch is light, where animals can live their lives uninterrupted by human uh, impacts, even if we happen to be there from time to time. So uh, I would say a range of use values that ranges from the old idea of wilderness to simply working landscapes that are lightly impacted. And I've been writing science fiction in which um, there are, are vast fields that are being partly worked by robots but partly by humans that come down out of the sky in great big dirigible or hot air balloons, do their um, harvesting from the sky and then just fly off with the crops without ever having touched the ground. And this is not a literal prediction or a um, calling out for design. It's more suggestive. It's more symbolic of what it might feel like. Yeah. I want to actually get back to your creative process a little bit because I've I read multiple places that you enjoy backpacking, especially in the Sierras. Yeah. I would imagine that's a, uh, an experience that leads to inspiration and creativity. Where do these ideas come from? Well, I, I mean, I'm best known for my Mars trilogy. There's no doubt about that. Sure. And what, uh, the reason I got interested in Mars was when the Viking data came in, it looked like the American West. And I had, at that point, at that same point the Viking data came in, I was beginning my Sierra project, which is just to say that I go up there as much as I can. Yeah. I am a backpacker, and I spend a lot of time in the Sierra. And I thought, geez, if Mars actually has no atmosphere, and the, the water that's there is all frozen. It's not actually the American West at all. But if you terraformed it, very quickly you would get places that look like the high Sierra above treeline. And this was both wrong but right. At least it was inspiration to me to write the Mars Trilogy, to think about land use issues, about utopia, but also to write about landscapes that I was seeing in my own life so that people would say about these books, Jesus, it seems like he's been to Mars, and, I, and I've not been to Mars, but I've been to the High Sierra a lot. And so uh, some paragraphs of uh, Green and Blue Mars are written directly out of my Sierra notebooks. Uh, just sit down by a pond, write what I see, and then I stuck it in the book. Huh. 
So um, the creative process in that case is more like something like Thoreau did. Pay attention to the landscape you're in. Write it down as accurately as you can. There's something evocative about writing, about reading a set of sentences where the reader goes, ah, oh, yes, I've seen that too, or ah, oh, that, that brings it clear to me what it might be like, and also, importantly, what it feels like to be there. That was my experience reading uh, Red Mars, was... Um was one I felt like it was there, but I mean, I mean, in, in a way, the setting was the main character to me. Uh, yeah. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I think I think that uh, that's that's part of the reason. Again, I wanted to talk to you sort of about um, problems of the environment as a science fiction writer, because this seems like a very useful way of of understanding our fears about the future. If uh, you know, if, if you have a talent for uh, for creating setting and for for bringing alive. Um, whether it's the surface of Mars in the future or the surface of Earth in the future. Right. Well, um, science fiction is good for this purpose. It's the genre that's best at uh, writing the relationship between person and planet, and that's the crucial thing. So the the, the great 19th century novels, and these are truly great novels um, or, or novelists, would be about the individual and their society, and typically at the level of the city, sometimes the nation. So Balzac is all about Paris. Uh, every single uh, kind of job you could have in Paris gets written up in Balzac's 130 novels set in Paris. Dickens is about London, and uh, um, Tolstoy is about all of Russia, so there's a national level too. Mm. But what you get in science fiction, and this is really a Verne uh, going around the world in 80 days, and Wells talking about the next planet out and what happens between planets, science fiction is about person and planet. So that at that point, it's the genre that includes the ecological whereas before it was the social. And so there's a natural relationship here. If people are interested in more than just the relationships between individuals, which will always be the heart of any novel, and then between the individual and the society, but you want the larger historical element and then you want the larger ecological element, you trend towards science fiction. Uh, so, okay, so this, I think, is really helpful in the context of climate change, which is surrounded by a kind of an apocalyptic narrative uh, and, and, and a very uh, doom and gloom view of the future, that even in the worst-case IPCC scenarios where we're 800 parts per million or uh, or, or 8 degrees Celsius, uh, whatever, I think that there's still a difference between that and zombies. There's a relative sense. So, you know, I think I want to sort of leverage science fiction as a way of uh, understanding worst-case scenarios, but seeing them as not necessarily all bad. Right. I I'm follow what you're saying, and I agree, because uh, to me it's been very important to say that uh, even our worst-case scenarios will not be the end. As for um, plausible realist science fiction, well, you do have a worst-case scenario that would lead to food panics because the, the worst-case scenario is bad enough that agriculture could be hammered. Human life for 7 billion uh, or 8 billion people could be hammered. And at the first really big food panic, I think social order might break down. And then we end up with chaos, anarchy, police state, in the various apocalyptic uh, things being represented. Now, that's a true worst-case scenario, and I don't think it's all that implausible because at the first food panic, we are going to see uh, a lot of changes and a lot of disruptions. But, um, but everything short of that, I would say then, the only thing that is really final is extinctions. Yeah. That if we don't have extinctions, we, the life is so robust and humans are so ingenious, we can come back from everything. We can, 
we can do carbon drawdown. We can get this 350.org. That is not uh, a fantasy. We could get back to 350 parts of, uh, per million of carbon dioxide in this atmosphere. Reforestation, peat bogs, and even mechanical vacuum cleaners of CO2, all combined could do it. Now, the one thing we can't do, as I'm sure you know, is we can't deacidify the ocean. Right. Uh, and that, everything we do to the ocean is pretty much unmitigatable. And that's scary. Uh, because the bottom of the food chain is these little creatures in the ocean that acidification might harm them. I still think that if, if we avoid extinctions, we can rebuild biomes. We can garden them. We can become landscape restoration, can become the major activity, at least on the Earth's surfaces. In the oceans, I'm not confident at all that we can do these things. Uh, although, if you leave them alone, they seem to come back pretty fast. But leaving them alone is the problem here. It does seem to me, though, that there's a certain discomfort with that sort of ecosystem engineering mentality that uh, presumes uh, a hubris that I think a lot of environmentalists struggle with, which is why we have this uh, sort of attitude of let's leave it alone and let, and let nature run its course, let God do its thing. But maybe that's an obfuscation of responsibility. Yeah, I'd say get over it because, you know what, we've been tampering with the uh, environment for about 100,000 years now. We've been setting fires. Australia looks the way it does because of the human arrival 50,000 years ago, and it goes on and on like that. So um, uh, what I think you, people have to do is, is say, look, since we can wreck biomes, and we have, then we ought to take on the responsibility of unwrecking them or not wrecking them in the first place. I, so it's not hubris. It's just taking responsibility for something we're already doing. Totally agree. But I also think that there's a um, that, that what draws some people to the wilderness experience in the first place is uh, is a kind of religious pursuit uh, mm -hmm. where you are observing powers greater than yourself. You know, and whether or not you want to call that God is up to you, but there is something, I, I think, a, a religious thread in here that does sort of balk at that kind of intervention. Sure, but let's let's follow this, because I, I would agree with all that. When I'm in the High Sierra, it is a, uh, a feeling of walking in a miracle. It's a religious feeling for sure. But also in my garden, where I'm uh, actively trying to kill Nutsedge, and going after certain plants and killing them with great glee and leaving others alone. And also walking down Broadway in Manhattan or down in the Wall Street area of Manhattan. And then you go down to the water's edge and you see little signs of life, you know, uh, river otters or uh, 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 eelgrass. Um, these are all sacred spaces. It doesn't take us not being there. We're part of it. We're implicated with it. We're the consciousness of it, along with some other consciousness of it. But we're the linguistic consciousness of this entire uh, biosphere. So um, we don't need to make an either-or. We don't need to make a separation between human and nature. It's all a, a moosh that we're in, and then we are the ones trying to talk it out. And there's no great distinction between any of the other elements. I love that phrase. We are the linguistic element of the biosphere. Okay, I want to back up and talk a little bit more about apocalyptic narratives uh, uh, surrounding climate change and and the Anthropocene more broadly, um, because it you know I, when we when we talk about the worst case scenarios, food shocks and political revolts and and those sorts of things, there's always a question in my mind of you know the time scale under which these things play out. You know that that climate moves at its own pace, which can be abrupt in a geologic sense, certainly, but becomes urgent when, when natural disasters strike or when we get prolonged droughts. But it still seems like that's a timescale with which 
you know, human adaptation can take place. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is that bullshit? No, I, I, I think this is the whole boiling frog problem, you know, that we're frogs in water that's getting hotter and we're not realizing we're getting cooked until it's too late. I mean, this is a very real problem. And it's also a narrative problem. So that if you're trying to write a novel in which individual characters are facing individual crises that will be dramatic and will form the subject of your novel, climate change sits there. And I still remember talking to a geologist back in the 1990s, like, how quick could the sea level uh, rise happen? And he goes, really fast. Yeah. I said, how fast do you mean? He says, well, 500 years. And so as a novelist, I'm thinking, wait, no. I need uh, something that I can portray as happening in a scale of, of a couple of years, yeah. uh, where people have to do things in their lives right there along with the rest of daily life. And that was why I uh, uh, headed towards in my uh, climate trilogy. Um, it was the, in the Mars trilogy as well, wasn't it? There's a climate event of uh, an ice sheet slipping into the Well, sea. that's right. That yeah. began it. That was when I asked that question, was how fast could the West Antarctic ice sheet come off to a, 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 a scientist, a volcanologist at University of Texas. But in this case, my DC climate trilogy, which is about NSF trying to deal with it in the near future, I went for the Gulf Stream stalling mm. because the younger Dryas was, uh, once they got the Greenland ice core results, they're going, holy moly, not just fast, but abrupt. That was when abrupt climate change was brought forth as a as a phrase was from the Greenland ice core data. And it was Richard Alley and the others who were saying, this is abrupt climate change because it was three years mm -hmm. from a warm, wet climate to a cold, dry climate around about um, uh, either 11 or 8,000 years ago. I forget. I think it's 11. Is the younger yeah, dryas, the younger yeah. dryas. And so um, that I could write up. I said, well, what if that were to happen again? And, and talk to the scientists about it. And they said, well, it's an awful lot of fresh water, but Greenland's melting fast. And you could always say, oh, my gosh, it happened. And then you could portray that. So that's what I did in 40 Signs of Rain. Well, really, the book that's now called Green Earth, because right. I, I revised it and compressed it. And uh, in that book, I chose that event because it happened so fast. But the climate change is often going to be happening at more like the decade, the half century, the century scale. And then it becomes really hard to write about and to think about. Right. And to do anything about. So then you have to think about, you have to think historically. This is where science fiction comes in again. History of the future. You have to think, well, what will it be like for my grandchildren? Do I, do I simply dismiss my grandchildren? Or in classical capitalist economics, your grandchildren are always conceived of being so much richer than you because of economic progress and a rise in the GDP, etc., that they can deal with any problems you create so you don't worry about your grandchildren. They are discounted. And I mean um, literally discounted in terms of the mathematical calculations. The discount rate for the future is set extraordinarily high in ordinary economics. But now we're looking at an ecological situation that cuts against that, cuts down against it, such that our grandchildren are likely to be much poorer than us. Mm -hmm. And therefore, for us to continue to consume at the level that we are and to wreck the earth at the speed that we are, is to truly wreck our grandchildren's lives. And so then I think you, in order to bring it back to the human scale and what do I do, you have to take it back to the uh, family, to the generations, this kind of Indian concept that you are responsible for seven generations after you and that the seven generations before you are who made you what you are, that kind of thinking, which is really historical thinking. Yeah. You have to bring that into the climate game. Yeah.
It's difficult. It's difficult to build empathy across generations. It is. I mean, well, you care more than anything about your kids. Sure. Uh, 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 my friend David Brin talks about this, how for your kids, you'll throw yourself in front of a bus. For your grandkids, you'll give them a $50 certificate to going to graduate school. You know, there's a, a weird uh, discounting of the future going on there in our emotions. Well, I, I actually find the same uh, thing kind of happens with the hierarchy of life as well, that I have more empathy for mammals than I do for birds and reptiles, and I have more empathy for vertebrates than I do for invertebrates. Yeah, yeah. I'm there with you. And I must say, for many years, I thought the mammals, and we're losing the mammals, and this is the heartbreaker, because these big mammals are like your your cousins. They're like, uh, Muir called them our horizontal brothers and sisters. And they really feel that way about the other mammals. The empathy is strong. I never cared at all about birdfish or the rest of them, but I'm working out here year after year. It's been about um, seven or eight years now where I've spent every day here, well, I've got a lot of birds around. And I've begun to realize that birds, A, they're dinosaurs, which is interesting, and B, they're in incredibly intelligent and articulate beings, uh, sentient clearly. And so I'm beginning to think of birds as like feathered mammals. Yeah. It's stupid, but um, I, my, my, um, my zone of empathy has spread out to birds now. Now, whether that could ever happen for fish, because they're always invisible to us, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, okay. So, you know, I guess I want to make sure to give you the opportunity to say something about how science fiction can be a powerful mechanism for helping us wrestle with with questions of placing value on the environment. I mean, you know, I I want to I want to kind of sum it all up a, a little bit here and think. Um, if you had an opportunity to have all the students read a story, which one would it be and why? Maybe that's one way to approach the question. Or maybe it's about seeding creative thought and taking a current trend in science or in politics and running out that scenario in a way that, that you think could deliver a lot of you know, meaning for, uh, for younger students. To me, the way science fiction works is to, it's an old phrase by Robert Heinlein, if this goes on, so it's a matter of extrapolating uh, what one sees as trends or new things that are appearing in our moment and trying to imagine if this goes on, what will that lead to? If our, if our abilities at cloning go on, then you could in potentially clone yourself and then bring up a little child that is genetically identical to yourself. How weird is that? What are the implications of it for society and for history? This is what science fiction does with all of its ideas. And what I'm saying is that there isn't really one science fiction story that you read and get enlightened by because it tells the perfect future. That never happens. What you want to read is a lot of science fiction that has the full spread from horrible dystopias where everything's gone wrong to utopian fiction where lots of things have gone right and you are reading about a better society and what problems remain or what life feels like in a better society. What would people do? And what, where would drama come from? Um, attention and interest come from in a society that ran better? I believe that there would be no end of dramatic and hor even horrible events in utopia, and I've written about them. But what you want to get back to science fiction is to read a lot of it, read a whole spread, and in a lot of different authors. Pick your favorites and read them deeply, and then think about the future and realize that you yourself are a science fiction writer because you write your own future and all the scenarios. Like, oh gosh, if I blow it here, then I could end up, you know, really in a terrible space. Or if I do this right, then I could end up where I want to be, and it could be like this. 
So um, since we are all science fiction writers anyway, the genre itself is a is a great playground. It's a articulation of what we do anyway, and it, and it, sometimes it can be extremely vivid, and and moving. And then you've got art, you've got literature. So I'm thinking science fiction is just one aspect of what literature does. Uh, literature to me is both time travel and telepathy because in literature you can see or imagine, feel what it was like to be in Rome when the Goths came in or when Caesar got killed or what it's going to be like underneath the ocean of Europa when uh, a sub penetrates under there. And also telepathy, we can't know what other people are thinking. This is a big mystery. But you read a novel that has good stream of consciousness or free and direct style, you're in somebody else's mind. And of course it's an artifice, but it's pretty compelling and convincing when done well. And then you've had the experience of being inside other people's lives. So I love literature for this aspect of uh, living more lives and, and going to other times and places in a kind of a science fiction-y power way. But then science fiction is the future wing. Well, if we do this, we'll get to there. And, and so I've specialized in science fiction, but really I love all the literature, all the literature that we have. Yeah. The Anthropocene as a concept, as I've explored it in this show and as my friends have explored it in this show, uh, is, is a kind of, you know, it's a whiteboard. It's a platform that, that, that yeah. people map a lot of, uh, see themselves in, in a way, um, both, you know, for in aspirational ways and in apocalyptic and dystopian ways. Um, yeah, I, 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 to me, it's it's a it's a it's nothing more than a statement of human power separate from human control. Um, but what do you see in the term? Uh, well, let me um, follow what I think is its history. I think a group of scientists who come out of geology and the physical sciences were also feeling as uh, citizens and uh, moral human actors that um, humans were wrecking the biosphere and they wanted to intervene. And so they wanted to invent this term to point out that we have an immense destructive power that needs to be turned to a constructive power or else we're in big trouble. So the Anthropocene is a way of, of first it was a very simple intervention. Let's point out how powerful we are. We're so powerful that we're marking the geological record. Now it almost immediately in the academic world fell into the great maze of discourse. So each department has its own versions and individual philosophers slash ethicists slash literary people will, uh, will argue at huge length what does it really mean and when did it really start because there were various physical markers that could be shown that geologists five million years from now will see it here or there or one one place or another. Proverbial golden spike in the, in the stratigraphic record. Right, right, yeah. exactly. Well, now this is all falling into the swamp of discourse. So almost immediately the term has become semi-useless as a political term right. because it isn't clear what the upshot of it is. What it, If we agree that the Anthropocene exists and that we're in it, well, then what do you do next? Then you argue more. Uh, so I would say that there is no one term that can open our eyes to the state of the world in a way that will clarify our action. If you were going to pick one term, 
you might want to uh, say it's Marxism or it's leftism in general or utopianism or post-capitalism. I fixate on the term post-capitalist because it's open-ended as to what that might be, but that capitalism is so destructive that there are now people talking about the capitalocene. Yeah. Um, and that um, uh, the it's not really the Anthropocene, it's the moment where capitalism has inflected the world so intensely that it's the major force. Right. So, uh, but I like the Anthropocene because it puts it on the planetary level and it's a kind of a science fiction word and story. It's saying, it's, it's looking back at our time from the far future, which is a very science fictional exercise, saying five million years from now, the geologists that walk around, which is already a trippy thought, are gonna be able to see that golden spike in the geological record that this is where humans are impacting at such a rate that we're a geological force. Well, that's a science fiction exercise. So it's just like 350.org is a utopian science fiction story in the title of that organization's name. Like we have to get back to 350, a very uh, James Hansen thought. Mm -hmm. um, well, these are all useful and beautiful terms because we need something new. We don't want to just say environmentalism. We don't want to just say wilderness. Right. These are, you know, 20th century and even 19th century terminologies. And now here in the 21st century, the reason the Anthropocene comes up as a word is it's trying to capture our, our postmodern uh, moment. And, and, it, and so I love the term. I don't think it's going to solve the problem, right. but it's a, a way to reconfigure all these discussions. Kim Stanley Robinson, thank you so much for sitting down. Uh, good luck with what are you working on right now, by the way? Oh, I just finished a New York City novel in which sea level rise of 50 feet has drowned lower Manhattan. When does it uh, hit the bookstores? Uh, March of next year. Okay. Yeah. Well, congratulations on that, and thank you again for sitting down with me. My pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Generation Anthropocene is produced by Leslie Chang, Mike Osborne, and me, Miles Traer. Isha Salian is our production intern. We want to thank Tom Hayden and Pam Matson. Our theme music is by Maserati, and our website is genanthro.com. You can also find us on Twitter, at Genanthropocene. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.